my name's Andy Chamberlain. I'm a writer and creative writing tutor, and you are listening to the Creative Writer's Tool Belt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. There's a few things I want to mention before I get into the episode today. In the last podcast, I introduced the idea of the six-stage structure for stories, and I'm really looking forward to getting to grips with plotting and structure over the next few episodes and helping you to think about how you should structure your stories. And on the subject of helping you, I want to remind you that I do set aside time to give individual listeners some help with their writing projects. It could be reviewing a story structure or some opening paragraphs or maybe even a critique of an opening chapter. If you'd like some help with your project, all you have to do is join the Creative Writers Toolbelt group on Goodreads, tell us a bit about yourself and then ask away. If you're enjoying the podcast and you want to hear a bit more from me, then one way to do that is to join me at the Lake School of Writing course, which this year runs from the 9th to the 13th of November. It's a week in the beautiful setting of the Lake District, and this year we're going to be exploring the art of story and biography. If you're interested, go to my website. It's www.andrewjchamberlain.com or drop me a line, andrew at andrewjchamberlain.com. And if you really want to hear a bit more of me, you can book me to speak at your writing group or at your conference. Again, just drop me a line, andrew at andrewjchamberlain.com if you want to ask about that. Finally, as some of you know, I've just released a new story. It's called Traveller's Blues, A Mystery in Space. I've already had some great reviews for it, so go and check it out. It'll only cost you about a dollar or the equivalent wherever you are, and it's available on all the ebook platforms. And I'll be using Traveller's Blues for some of the examples in future episodes. So if you get it, not only will you enjoy reading it, you'll also know what I'm talking about when I occasionally refer to it. So that's Traveller's Blues, A Mystery in Space. It's available on all the ebook platforms. Okay, so today's episode is an interview and my guest is Lee Harris. Lee is a senior editor at Tor.com. He has commissioned science fiction and fantasy manuscripts and he is currently overseeing a new novella imprint for Tor. He's former senior editor at Angry Robot and he used to publish Hub, an electronic fiction easing. In 2014, he was shortlisted for a Hugo Award in the Best Long Form Editor category and as well as editing, Lee also writes mostly short stories, although he has also written for the stage and he's also partway through a novel. So welcome to the Creative Writers Toolbelt, Lee. Oh, thank you for having me, Andy. It's great to have you with us. I'm going to get straight into the questions. What is it that first drew you to science fiction? And what is it that you love about it? The first part of that question, uh, what drew me to it, I think is actually quite a difficult question to uh, to answer. I'm in my uh, my uh, mid to late <coughs> 40s at the moment. <laughs> and I started reading at uh, a very young age. So trying to remember that far back, uh, specific books that I was reading when I was uh, you know, six, seven years old is quite difficult. I started off reading, I think I think it was probably adventure stories rather than science fiction and fantasy, things like The Three Investigators and The Hardy Boys, and I was an avid reader right from a very young age. I, I, I couldn't get uh, enough of it. Anything that was put in front of me, I would I would read, and I would happily take uh, a, a, an entire day off school and lie in bed pretending to be sick just so that I could uh, start and finish uh, a couple of books. In terms of science fiction and fantasy, I don't remember which were the first ones that I read. I, I probably started off, I think it was Heinlein, and I think really it's in science fiction and fantasy, anything can happen. I love good world building and discovering how a particular universe works, how the author knits everything together, uh, the science, the magic, the political systems, and how this affects the characters that populate the story. I think that sort of thing has always interested me and always fascinated me, 
learning about cultures that are, are very different to my own, even if those cultures don't actually exist in the real world. Do you read any science fiction for pleasure? Do you even have time for that these days? I read some. It's funny, a, a colleague of mine set herself a target a couple of years ago of, uh, of reading 50 books in the year for pleasure because she wanted to cut down because it was uh, interfering with the amount of books uh, that she was able to read for work. Was this an editorial colleague? It, uh, she was uh, she was able to read between 50 and 100 books on top of her day-to-day job. I've never been able to read that amount. So, well, certainly not since I've been uh, working in editing. And I realised three years ago, I think it was, but, uh, that year, uh, 2011, 2012, whenever it was, uh, I read three books for pleasure. And so I set myself a target the following year uh, of reading 12. To, uh, and I, I just about hit it. And then I set myself a target of, of reading, I think it was 18. And uh, I just missed that. And then I realised that setting myself targets was you know, taking part of the fun out of it. And anyway, I was getting to read great books because of the, the, the job I was doing. But I do find that these days I tend to read fewer fiction books for pleasure than I used to. But I read, I read a lot more non-fiction than I did. I'm currently reading uh, Anthony Beaver's uh, Second World War book. I recently read the Sarah Silverman uh, autobiography. And I'm reading, oh no, I just finished, the, the, there's a, a collection of David Mitchell essays that he, I think, I think, I think it was from the Independent. So, uh, you know, different things. Oh, yeah, sorry, there's a new, there's a maths book that I just started reading as well. A maths book? <laughs> okay. A maths book, yeah, I know. Now, currently, you are working for Tor.com, but I don't think you started out doing that. Can you tell us a bit about the kind of things you've been doing since you left school? Oh, okay. Um, how long is this podcast? <laughs> um, I used to be the sort of person that would swap jobs every 18 months or so because I, I, I got cold feet. Uh, it was a running joke between me and a friend of mine who would call me up on a, a, a two or three monthly basis and say, what job are you doing this weekly? I le- when I left school, I worked in retail for a, for a short while. I worked as a, a waiter at uh, TGI Fridays uh, when they first started up in the UK. From there, I went, uh, oh, I became an actor uh, for a, uh, a few years, something that I always wanted to do, and I really, really enjoyed it. I thought I was reasonable at it, but I never really had the, the, the absolute hunger that you have to have to, to survive in that world. So I, I moved around uh, during the acting phase or coming toward the end of the acting phase, I was a cocktail bartender in, in a cocktail bar in London. And uh, in 1993, actually, I, I became uh, a finalist in the Cocktail Bartender of the Year Championships. I worked as a communications executive for uh, an insurance firm. I worked for um, Xerox uh, for a short while. And for a few years, I co-ran and directed for uh, the UK's only professional genre theatre company. So, uh, yeah, uh, a fairly eclectic. Yeah, eclectic is the word that springs to mind. <laughs> Do you think you've now found your vocation? Oh, I have, yes. I started up a, a short fiction magazine called Hub, um, and that lasted for two issues as a as a print magazine. Uh, lost a fortune. Uh, we, we, it sold well enough, but we just couldn't attract uh, advertising for it. And so we took it online, and it lasted for about 150 uh, issues uh, as an online magazine. But it was a hub magazine that uh, brought me to the attention of Mark Gascoigne, who founded Angry Robot. Uh, he was looking for somebody to join him on, on this adventure and uh, recognised that the amount of work it takes to put out a weekly uh, short fiction magazine was uh, is really is the sort of thing he was looking for in his assistant, somebody who was, who just had the, the attitude of, well, let's just get on with it. And it was, it was very, very, very soon into my time with, with Angry Robot, but I realised that, you know, this is what I should have been doing all along. Okay, so now 
you have indeed found your vocation. And thinking about you as an editor, you must see a lot of manuscripts. What is it that makes you keep reading something that comes across your desk? I, I think that that's quite easy for me. I think it's the voice, the style. It's the author, author's confidence in their authority. If the author is confident in their own voice, and you know they have to be t- technically competent as well, of course, uh, that's usually enough to make me want to, to continue reading at least a bit further. Beyond that, of course, there has to be a compelling tale. I look predominantly, I think, for interesting characterization uh, first and foremost followed by um, plot and storyline other editors look at things in com- completely different ways you know some people will, will be interested in, in storyline predominantly with character uh, the the, uh, the fleshing out of characters uh, of secondary interest for me the characters have always come first if you want to draw me in uh, give me characters that I can't stop reading doing things that I can't stop thinking about. And is there anything that you've read recently that's made you think wow that is a great story I must publish this Oh, yes. Uh, yes, so many things. Uh, the beauty about the stage uh, we're in with this novella line at the moment is that everything is up for grabs. Our first book's come out in September of this year, and so we're just reading, reading, reading at the moment. We're editing the books that we've already uh, acquired, of course, uh, but we're just being inundated with some fantastic manuscripts by debut writers, by more experienced writers, by some very well-known writers. And uh, oh, some of the books that, that have come across my desk, I've just completely fallen, fallen in love with. There's a book that's coming out next year, uh, which uh, I've just got back the, uh, the author's second uh, draft. It's called uh, Every Heart a Doorway, Every Word a Prayer by Sean and Maguire. And it is just the most beautiful piece of writing and uh, you know, there, there, are, there are books by debut writers that are coming out our, our first novella The Sorcerer of the Will Deeps uh, by Kaya Shanti Wilson uh, again just uh, astonishing world building in that uh, but backed up by a great story I, I, I can't tell you how wonderful it is to be able to come on, into something fresh new imprint and to be able to look at books and think yes that book is something that I want to help define the work that we're doing at the moment so it's incredibly exciting. And thinking about creative writing more generally beyond the science fiction genre are there important lessons that aspiring writers in any genre should learn yes well i guess if it's if we're talking about the craft of writing then going back to something i said earlier to find your voice you might have to write a couple of trunk novels or you know dozens of or more short stories before you find it or you might find it a lot sooner it varies hugely from person to person but try to tell your story in a way that only you can tell it don't mimic somebody else's style and if you inadvertently find that you are doing that go away write something else in a different genre or in a different field completely maybe go write some non-fiction write some reviews and then come back to your own story with your palate cleansed but finding your voice finding the chords that resonate with your readers that make them uh, pick up your book and without even looking at the cover uh, start reading think okay this is this is a book by John Smith I, I know this work that's I think very very important if we're talking about the business of writing uh, which is a completely different thing then my number one tip and not getting dismissed at the first hurdle, this is a real bugbear of mine. If you don't want your uh, your submission to be binned straight away, whether you're submitting it to an editor or an agent, read the submission guidelines first. <laughs> now, that, you're laughing. That, that might sound obvious to you. It is obvious. Congratulations. You've, all, uh, you've already beaten 50% of your fellow submitters. I once had a submissions call for 
uh, fantasy novels, and I wanted epic fantasy. Uh, I wanted kingdom-based fantasy. I wanted you know the, the the sort of fantasy that you get your fix from from George R. R. Martin or or uh, or Gemmell or any of the, the people that wrote big, massive tales. And uh, of course, somebody sent me a fifty thousand word Batman novella. <laughs> um, so so yes, that wasn't read and uh, and he actually sent four other stories al- uh, along with that and n- none of those were even glanced at okay that's the lesson there check the submission guidelines and of course they're all slightly different for each publisher they are all slightly different uh, partly because everybody's looking for something different themselves we've talked about voice interestingly what you're saying there has reminded me of something that i read recently that stephen king is supposed to have said apparently he says that people come back to buy a book from this, a particular author not because of character character or setting or plot because of voice so Stephen King says that the reason why people buy books at all is because of voice and that's what brings people back again and again to the same author yeah yeah absolutely right and you know the people like Stephen King I think a, a great modern example would be Chuck Wendig who you know I can pick up a Chuck uh, Chuck Wendig book and doesn't matter whether he's writing YA whether he's writing urban fantasy whether he's writing a, a dark or, or a dark fantasy or horror I know because I enjoy his style I know that this is a book that's that's going to be of interest to me yeah i think king's absolutely right there and yeah uh, i think i'd be foolish to, to say that uh, pretty much anything that king has to say on on the uh, the craft of writing is is wrong he's uh, he's he's kind of a genius <laughs> he's sold a few books i guess hasn't he he's done all right no he's not done too bad now is there anything else you want to say to people who are writing in the science fiction genre in terms of lessons and insights things they should bear in mind yeah i guess if your story is based in or on our world uh, make the secondary characters particularly the secondary characters, behave uh, consistently with how they would in our world. You know, surprises are great, but, you know, don't jolt the reader out of the story with minor details that, that, uh, you know, that, that are that confusing. If your story is based in or on a different world, you know, if the science is particularly advanced or if magic works, then work out how your world works and do that if you can uh, do that, do that before you start writing. If you can't do it before you start writing, then w- once you're immersed in the book, or once you finish the book, go back and make sure that all of the rules are applied consistently. And I think, you know, drip feed this information to your readers. It's, it's, it's world building. It's uh, building part of it implies that there is a, a, an ongoing gradual process. Infodumps are great at the start of the season opener to the second series of your favorite TV show. But you shouldn't present your reader with a potted history of what they should know. Let them discover it through plot, through character. You know, needless to say, this, this applies to all genres. This isn't just science fiction and fantasy, but I think that's it's 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 something that when science fiction and fantasy writers do it poorly, it's even more obvious than your general lit authors. I know that writers will often try to think of ways to avoid an info dump, almost to the point of seeing it as a toxic thing. So it sounds like we should drip feed the information in. Absolutely. So staying on the subject of science fiction. What are the trends in the genre that you want to see in a story? And conversely, are there things that you don't want to see any more of for a while? In terms of genre trends, uh, you know, things like you know, vampires were huge for a while, zombies uh, were huge and, and, and still continue on a bit at the moment. I, I tend to try to ignore trends as far as commissioning books is concerned and, and concentrate purely on the quality of the, of, of the works themselves because trends are impossible to establish and they're frankly pointless trying to follow because of the glacial speed at which uh, publishing works if uh, if you see that uh, oh look the current big thing is mermaids in space then by the time you've written uh, your mermaids in space story and, and got your agent uh, interested enough to 
have sold it to a publisher, they're probably working uh, 18 months in advance. So you, you, you know, the current trend, you start writing a story now, and even if you're the fastest writer in the world, it's not going to hit the shelves for two and a half years, by which time you know, mermaids in space will, will be so passé. And it's, it's, under, it's underwater squirrels now. So you know, in terms of trends of story types, I ignore those completely because even the most tired genre, if you dismiss a book because it happens to be a vampire love story. It might be the best story in the world. It might be the one that reinvigorates the, the genre. It might be one that doesn't reinvigorate the genre, but, but stands alone uh, as, a, as, as a shining example. Just write what you want to write. Now, it's interesting that you should say this because there are a number of editors for whom some over-familiar tropes would be a barrier. I guess the best example of this I can think of is just after the Harry Potter phenomenon happened and lots of editors saw stories about boy wizards who stayed in a big boarding school. But it sounds like you're neutral on this and you judge each story on its merits regardless of the context and whether the story is in with current trend or not. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and, and yes, I mean, if, if around the Harry Potter time I had a, a book that was about a uh, young boy who suddenly discovers that uh, he's a wizard and goes to this big wizarding school, then yes, because that that's not following a trend, that's copying a series. But yeah, I love to be surprised and, and I love to be surprised by things that you think there might be too much of, uh, but uh, as well as things perhaps it's it's very difficult to find a book that's one of a kind, uh, but you know, surprise me. That's what makes my job interesting. That's what, what what's going to make me sit up and take notice of uh, of your manuscript. It's, it's not because it's completely original, uh, because that, that's almost impossible these days to uh, uh, to do. Uh, but because you've made it compelling because of the, the your voice and the characters that you put in and and the situations you you've put them in. So, are there directions that you'd like to see science fiction go in now and explore? There, there are lots of things, but I think the big one, there's a big push at the moment for diversity within science fiction and fantasy um, in terms of uh, author and protagonist gender, ethnicity, sexuality, and uh, political religious belief systems. And I think that's a huge step in the right direction. As a middle-aged, middle-class, cis white guy, I, I can pick up 95% of books on the shelves in my local shop and immediately feel at home with them, largely because they've been written by some very fine uh, writers who come from similar backgrounds. What's exciting me at the moment are the books that take me to other cultures and relate other experiences, but that are told from the point of view of characters that my fellow white middle-class, middle-aged white dudes can't write with any great authority. I think, you know, the, the best anthology of, of the last couple of years, as far as I'm concerned, uh, is a book called uh, Long Hidden, as edited by Rose Fox and Daniel Jose Older. Uh, science fiction and fantasy stories told by authors who might previously have been described as marginalised, uh, but whose, frankly, astonishing uh, writing talents and now start to be recognised by editors and readers who are absolutely desperate to find something new and compelling. And of course, it's not all new. Some of it is. It's just new to us. So, you know, there's some great stuff out there. And by trying to broaden your reading horizons, I think that's an absolutely fantastic way of finding something really interesting. Okay, I want to change tack slightly now. There's a lot of people who are enthusiastic science fiction mm -hmm. readers, but they've never taken the plunge and gone to a convention. And I'd include myself in that group. Uh, we think about it, but we're a bit uncertain. We're not sure what we're going to get. Will we find our way around? Will we feel lonely? Mm -hmm. Now, assuming you think it's a good thing for people to go to a convention, what would you say by way of hints and tips to somebody who's never been to a convention before? I think it depends on the reader and, and on the convention itself. There are dozens of types of reader. There are an equal number of convention types. Uh, I think some people are happy just to immerse themselves in the books 
uh, um, but you know, have no interest in the wider sphere of fandom, and that, that's that's absolutely fine. You know, the the, the, the books, the basis of, uh, of of what we do, what we're interested in, and but yeah, you're at the summer seeking community that you get through fandom, and that's wonderful as well. Um, so, what would I say if you're curious as to whether a convention is for you, and you don't have any friends that have been to conventions, then you know, make some friends online, ask their advice, do a bit of research. Uh, are you more interested, do you think, in a small, dry literary con or in something a little more uh, exuberant and colourful? You might find you don't like it. I think the chances of that, if you, you know, if you think you might have an interest in a convention, then I think the chances of you not enjoying a convention are probably relatively slim. But I think you know, there's a good chance that you, you'll find the right convention for you. Uh, but the, people have a, a huge variety of preconceived notions about what conventions do, what they're for, and, and the type of people that, that go to these. I remember the first convention that I ever went to was uh, was a fantasy con in Nottingham. And I remember w- when I was going to this, uh, my wife was so embarrassed that I was going to a fantasy convention. She was trying to think of a thing to tell her friends uh, if they asked where I was that weekend. I think she settled on uh, he's in prison for fraud because it was less <laughs> embarrassing to her. But really, conventions are just populated by people like us who love books, who love television, who love film, who love comics, who just want to talk about the, the things that they love with other people that love these, you know, the same things. It's uh, it, it's wonderful. I go to a number of conventions every year. I'm very, very, uh, it can be a little expensive to go to these things, but uh, I, I'm very lucky because I, I, I go for work. Uh, so I get to go to, to more of these things than uh, than I would uh, if I if I had to pay my own way. I started going as a fan. I'm now going as, as a as a pro and a fan, but you know, I, I, I hope I'll never lose the, the, the fun side of, uh, of going to cons. Okay, so there's another question that springs to mind. How mm. should an aspiring writer approach an editor at a convention? Should you even approach an editor at all at a convention? <laughs> okay, so the best way to approach an editor at a, at a convention is slowly holding out a bunch of £50 notes that are held out fan fashion in front of them so they can count them before <laughs> you get there. Uh, other than that, there are really two ways of, uh, of making that approach. One is to try to book yourself on one of the formal uh, events at a convention that will get you introduced to the editor in a formal capacity. It might be a, a sit-down uh, with uh, eight or ten other people uh, and that editor or agent at a table, and you have attention for an, for an entire hour, or it might be a formal pitching session that the convention has put on where you're able to go over and, and the, the, the whole point of it is that you can sit in front of them for 10 minutes and tell them about your book. Those are the, the, the most common of the formal ways of doing it. If you want to do it in, uh, in a more informal way, or if th- those formal ways aren't presented at that particular convention, then the best thing to do, and this is going to sound a little... Uh, contrived, but it's it's not meant to be. Uh, editors and agents and publishers enjoy themselves at these conventions, and if, uh, if they're not uh, on panels or watching their authors on panels, you can probably find them in the bar. Yeah, I wondered if the bar might come into it at some point. The bar comes into every conversation you will ever have with anybody who works in publishing. Uh, it's a very, very... Uh, conventions are important to, to us because we find, as, as well as our own, our own authors, our existing authors who are there, that we're there to support, we do find... Uh, occasionally new authors that we uh, that we end up uh, publishing and becoming great friends with. But uh, the, the point uh, I'm about to make is that one of the best ways to get to know an editor 
uh, or a publisher or a, a, an agent is simply to be a normal, interesting human being and have normal, interesting conversations that, that don't start with you holding out a brown manila envelope uh, and saying, have a look at my book. If publishing, like like any, not like any business, by certain, but certainly like most businesses and most businesses that I've been involved in, publishing is all about relationships. People want to work with people that they like. And the best thing about conventions is that it gets you uh, up close and personal with all sorts of people from all sorts of uh, walks of life. Some of those happen to work uh, as professionals in publishing. And I think a really interesting and stress-free way of getting to know an editor is to talk to them, but do it in a social environment. Do it so that they get to know you before they get to know your book. Uh, I've bought books from people that I've met at conventions or have met online uh, because I found them interesting. And because I found them interesting, I believed that I might find it, it, that I might find their writing interesting um, because interesting people write interestingly. It's very strange that, but certainly don't doorstep people. Don't interrupt conversations they're already having. But uh, you know, make yourself make yourself known to them. You know, offer to buy them a drink. Uh, they might say no. They might not. So it sounds as though basically the normal social rules apply. Uh, the kind of you do the kind of things that you might do when you meet somebody new in any situation. Absolutely, yeah, completely. And the thing with conventions is that you'll find. Certainly with the smaller conventions, uh, it's, it's easier to run into the same people time and time again. Uh, and so it's uh, like, the, you know, like the developing of any relationship. It can be an ongoing process. And it might well be that you know, an editor or an agent asks you about your book. I had a, a, an author that uh, I met online. Uh, we, we found the same things interesting. I didn't always agree with his opinion on things, but we, we started talking on Twitter and I found I was having great conversations with him. And then... Uh, met him. I asked him about his books rather than the, the, the other way around. But you know, develop relationships. Developing relationships with people is so important. It might take you two, three, four, five uh, um, conventions before you start to get to know people. Don't. Uh, this is coming across as, as quite a cynical way of doing things, but it's. Uh, I, don't, I don't mean target somebody and, and think right. I'm going to make them my friend. And then they're going to want to buy my book. That's not what I mean. It's uh, make yourself part of the community. If you're going to a convention, because part of the thing that you want to do is to use that convention to uh, to make contacts, you know, that's that's great. That's completely legitimate uh, use of uh, of the convention. But don't do it in a cynical fashion. The fashion, the best way to make contacts is to make friends and to become part of the community. So I guess you can approach this with an attitude of being prepared to give of yourself. We're talking about relationships and relationships that are give and take. But uh, as I say, don't go in with the, with, this, <coughs> with the cynical attitude of, right, by the end of this convention, I'm going to have three uh, editors' uh, email addresses. You know, because you might get that, but it, you might get it just because they want to get rid of you because you're being annoying. Uh, the best thing to do, the absolute best thing to do is just to be yourself and to become part of the furniture there. I started going to conventions as uh, largely as, as, as a fan and got to know people really just by hanging out in the bar. You know, I got to know agents, I got to know uh, editors and, 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 write, and other writers purely by being available and, and being somebody who, who's interested in other people. And that's the thing, I think, you as a writer, you have to be interested in other people. You can't write if you're not interested in other people. Now, you were talking there about agents, and some of my writing friends complain that they can't reach a publisher because a lot of publishers will only now deal with agents. What's your view on that? That's, that's largely true, and that's because... 
of the sheer volume of manuscripts that would come across an editor's desk if, if they didn't have to go through an agent. To give an example, when I was at Angry Robot, we, uh, we had a policy of accepting manuscripts only through agents. But once a year, we would open up the, the doors to unagented writers to give uh, everyone a chance. The first time we did that, we opened up the doors for a month and we had 994 uh, manuscripts. This, this, is, this is novels. Uh, that's on top of all of the books that we were already com- getting in from agents that we know and from all, uh, authors that, that, uh, that we know. And so it really is just, a, it's, it's partly a, a, a quality thing. You would assume that uh, a book coming in from an agent is going to be of a better quality than a book that doesn't uh, come in from an agent. On average, that doesn't always apply, I have to say. But it's also a way of lowering the sheer volume of submissions that you get. Uh, now, conversely, as editors and publishers, we want to be able to publish every book that comes across our desk. We want to find a book that we fall in love with. We want to find new voices because that, you know, that's the future of, of what we're doing. So anybody who tells you that we're only interested in publishing the same old people, complete nonsense, because the same old people will only be around for a, a finite amount of time. We want to find new voices. We want to find new books. The reason we're in this business in the first place is because we love books and, and, and we want to, uh, to, to to bring new voices to the world. Before I came on board uh, last August, uh, we had an open submissions period, which we managed to get through. We closed that then before I came on board, but we had so many in the in the uh, uh, the list that that lasted through to the end of the year. We also approach authors directly. We approach uh, agents, and agents approach us. And very shortly, we will be opening up the doors again to unagented uh, submissions. Okay, can you tell us when that will be? I'm expecting us to open the uh, the doors for unagented submissions around the beginning of May. Okay, you guys are going to be busy then. Well, I guess you're always busy. So, yeah, we're always happy to be busy. Now, I want to ask you about the issue of self-publishing. Do you think mm. self-publishing has a role, maybe as a complement to the world of commercial publishing where you work? You know, I think uh, self-publishing is one of the biggest equalizers in publishing of the 21st century, and everyone can publish a book now. It's it's wonderful. Not everyone should, but everyone can. Now, I, I'm not just talking about from the, the quality of work, you, you know, but, but also the the sort of work that goes into publishing uh, a, a book yourself. Because as a as a writer, if you're working with a publisher, you would hope that the publisher will take on the the lion's share of the marketing, that the publisher will uh, commission and pay for a really good cover for you, uh, that uh, they'll arrange distribution of your book not only uh, online uh, but uh, but throughout the bookstores. They'll arrange for uh, your your books to be reviewed by appropriate venues. If you're self-publishing, you don't have anybody to do that all that all that for you, and so you either have to do it yourself or you have to arrange for that to be done for yourself. So uh, when I say that you know, not everyone should self-publish, it's not just because uh, not everybody has the quality of story inside them, it's that not everybody has the mindset uh, so the entrepreneurial mindset to be able to handle all that. Some people just want to write, and that's absolutely fine too. But I think that anybody who has even a passing interest in self-publishing uh, should at least dip their toe in the waters to see if it's for them. Now, that's a really interesting point you've made there, because it seems to me that quite often the mind you need to write, the kind of brain that you have to have to write, is almost diametrically opposite to the kind of brain that you have to have to promote yourself and to market your books. It's as if you need two brains to do two different jobs. I think that can be true. Uh, but equally, I think there are some people out 
out there uh, who have the, the temperament, the ability, and the sheer bloody-mindedness that you need to be able to succeed at this. And there's some great people out there, and there's some great people who are doing so well at this sort of stuff that they're offering lots of really good advice. Uh, there's some, there are always going to be some, some evangelists of, uh, uh, who you should you know, take their advice with a pinch of salt, but there are some people who look at self-publishing from a, a sensible uh, standpoint and, and offer some really good hints and tips on what you should be doing, what you should be looking for, and share their experiences. I think uh, you know, there's plenty of places you can go to to, to get some free advice. And I mentioned Chuck Wendig earlier. I mean, he's another great example of this. He's a hybrid author. He'll self-publish some of his books. He'll publish some of them, uh, some of them traditionally. But he shares all his experiences on his own website, uh, terribleminds.com. Uh, if you don't mind a little profanity, strike that. If you don't mind a lot of profanity, uh, it's one of the best writing resources out there on, uh, on the internet. It really, really is. Uh, n- uh, not just for hints and tips for writers generally, but for hints and tips for writers who are interested in self as well as traditional publishing. Okay, and that was terribleminds.com. Yeah. So now I want to talk a bit more about what you're doing. You're working uh, with novellas now. So what is special about a novella? <laughs> How do they differ from, say, a short story or a novel? Okay. Um, can I tell you what a novella is? I can tell you what I think a novella is, but the, the, a novella, uh, there, when we talk about short stories and, and uh, novelettes and novellas and flash fiction and, uh, and novels, nobody can agree on a definition of, of what that constitutes. So, for instance, if you were to ask the World Fantasy Society uh, what uh, they consider to be a novella, they'd say it'd be any story from 10,000 to 40,000 words. If you were to ask the same question to the World Science Fiction Society, they'd say, well, from seven and a half thousand to seventeen and a half thousand words, that's a novelette. A novella's from seventeen and a half thousand to forty thousand words. They, they both agree on the, the top limit, forty thousand words. Um, but uh, you know, if the, the, the Hugo people say it's uh, from seventeen and a half thousand, whereas the World Fantasy people say it's from ten thousand. Uh, so, so uh, but, uh, you know, and they say a, no, uh, a novel is from uh, from forty thousand, which again, I think that's debatable. But these are all these are these are all debatable. But uh, so, you know, I'm I'm working with the, the the World Science Fiction Society definition of this because I think anything less than seventeen and a half thousand. Uh, words for me, you're, you're, that's short story territory. Interestingly, both societies would disagree on that. You know, World Fantasy Society would say that's a, uh, that's a novella. You know, ten thousand words is a novella to, to them. That's, I'd say that's a short story. World Science Fiction Society says it's a novelette. Novelette? I think that's a ridiculous term. <laughs> you know, but, um, okay, but if somebody wants to approach you with a piece of work, it's your standards they need to work to. Yeah, I'm, I'm siding with the um, with, with the world science fiction people on this. I'm saying seventeen and a half thousand to forty thousand words. I would prefer, wherever possible, not to go as low as seventeen and a half thousand. Uh, you know, thirty, forty thousand words is a sweet spot for me. Can you tell us a bit more about how you're going to publish these novellas? So perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your role and what we should expect to see in a few months' time. Okay, so um, so I'm the senior editor at the new novella program. I have an assistant uh, editor, uh, the uh, amazing Carl Engel Laird, and he's co-responsible for finding great stories for us to publish at, you know, at, at these lengths for you know, within science fiction and fantasy. We, you know, we have interests that uh, overlap, but we also have things that excite us more than they excite the other person. I think that's a great position to be in. Uh, but we, we just want to find great stories that we can publish. I mean, some of the best stories in, in the world are, are, are of uh, novella length, as far as I'm concerned. I, you know, I, every year I read uh, Christmas Carol. Uh, that's that's uh, a novella. 
War of the Worlds, was a novella, uh, Asimov's Bicentennial Man, Stephen King, The Mist. I don't think he, he's ever uh, bettered The Mist at, uh, at that sort of length. I think it's a fantastic book. And uh, over the last couple of years, you know, two of my favourite books of the last couple of years have been uh, novellas, um, Whitstable by Stephen Volk and The Language of Dying, uh, Sarah Pinbridge. It's a just a beautiful, beautiful length. I think part of that is because of because I read so much for work anyway. If I want to immerse myself in some fiction, picking up the latest doorstop fantasy is difficult for me, not only because I have weak arms, uh, but because I know that by if I start that book, I have to devote the next six months of my life to it because I have so much reading to do in the meantime. Whereas I can pick up a novella and I know I can, I can finish that story in... Uh, in, a, in a week or two, even reading at the glacial pace that I sometimes have to, because I'm reading so much in between uh, as well. Uh, but for you know, the, the reading public or the listening public, if, you know, if you're listening to, to, uh, to audiobooks, the novella's great because you can start a book on Monday morning on your way to work, and by uh, the time you get home on Friday uh, evening, you've experienced an entire story. All of our books will be available as, as e-books. All of our books will be available as print-on-demanded editions. So for people who, who don't want an e-book, uh, you know, there, there will be print editions uh, available wherever you are. Uh, and uh, all of our books will be available as audiobooks as well. And that's a, that's a, a great format, I think. Uh, um, a lot of fiction that I consume at the moment, if it's longer than novella length, then uh, audio is, uh, is is one of my preferred uh, uh, formats for, for doing that. Uh, so ebook, print on demand, and uh, and audio. And you might find us with some traditionally uh, published books in the not too distant future as well. Okay, can you tell us about any other projects that you particularly are working on? Any conventions that you're planning? Yeah, well, or- thing, what, what else is there? Um, well, obviously, building the list at, uh, at tour.com. Uh, we've got some new colleagues coming uh, coming on board shortly. We've got a, a designer that's starting with us next week, and our, our marketing person's starting in a couple of weeks as well so we'll, we'll very very shortly be a, um, a full team uh, it's convention season coming we were talking about conventions earlier uh, and convention season's just about to come up so uh, yeah I'll be doing uh, Nine Worlds uh, Geek Fest uh, in August beginning of August and oh, well, before that there's Convergence which is my favourite convention in the entire world uh, that's in Minneapolis that's 5th to the 8th of July I think or something like that certainly, certainly the weekend closest to, uh, to July the 4th I can't remember the dates off uh, and it's uh, it, coincidentally, it's my first ever guest of honor gig as a, as a convention. Really looking forward to that. I'm not saying it's my favourite convention because I'm a guest of honor. I've been saying that for years. Then we've got Nine Worlds at uh, Heathrow in the I think it's the first week of August. Uh, I'm off to Worldcon then in uh, Spokane, which is not that far from uh, Seattle. The end of August, FantasyCon, which is in Nottingham this year. Uh, if you go to FantasyCon2015.org, uh, you'll find the details there. Uh, we've got some fantastic guests coming along for that. We've got uh, John Connolly, uh, the author John Connolly. We've got Brandon Sanderson. We have Juliet McKenna, uh, who's our uh, mistress of ceremonies, and the publisher Joe Fletcher from uh, Joe Fletcher Books. That's going to be fantastic. And then I've got World Fantasy uh, coming up in November, I think it is. So it's really, really busy. So you're going to be busy at the back end of this year. And uh, Fantasy Con looks like it's on the 25th to the 27th of October. Uh, that sounds right, yes. Okay, so we're going to draw things to a close in a moment is there anything else you want to say by way of advice uh, guidance uh, thoughts of lee anything at all 
Thoughts of Chairman Lee. Yeah, I wasn't going to say that. Thoughts of Chairman <laughs> Lee. But uh, that's kind of where it was going, wasn't it? Do you know what? I'm just going to go back to the, uh, the, the advice I gave earlier. And it's, you know, just read the submission guidelines, please, please, please. Not just for well, it's In fact, it's not mainly for our sake. It's for your sake. Uh, as as, a, as a, uh, an author who wants to get your work seen, you'll have spent six months, 12 months, 24 months, five years, 10 years uh, perfecting your first book. Don't screw it all up by falling at the at the, the very last hurdle. Well, it's not the very last hurdle. Well, I guess it could be. If you've said 14 point font on the guidelines and the manuscript's eight point font, then that's it. You're out the door. That would that would be true. But I think if, if I ever saw some guidelines that were so prescriptive that it told me the size of the font, then I would probably think, actually, they don't want to submit to them. I did once have somebody ring me up at work uh, to ask me what font uh, they should uh, in. We have seen it as writers. A lot of us know how critically important this is. We'll do whatever it takes to get the manuscript guidelines right. But I do take your point. Yeah, but if, if it's a physical manuscript that we're wanting, fair enough, because you know, it needs to be legible. Uh, but if it's an ele- electronic manuscript, and if, you know, if I have a manuscript that's sent in, in a font I don't like, at a size I don't like, I can change the font and the size of our entire manuscript in less than 10 seconds. It's not a big deal. If only all editors were as forgiving as you are, Lee. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but actually, I think that's quite that is quite a good point. Uh, that, like, like I said earlier, the, 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 this is a business, but it's all about relationships. Yes, it does come back to that point you made earlier. Mm. Okay, well, Lee, thank you very much for your time. It's been great talking to you. Thanks, Andy. Okay, thanks. Cheers. Thanks. Bye. 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 